faith and life. For some people, they're parallel roads. They never come into contact with each other. One never influences the other. Yet for some other people, faith and life are more like intersecting roads. Often they're running opposite each other, but where they do intersect, wonderful God moments can be experienced. But yet for just a few, the two roads merge into one, and the results are truly a highway to heaven. What does the road of faith and life look like in your world? We're continuing with our message series, Learning from Others' Mistakes. And this morning, we're going to take a look at learning from uh, about 10 people's mistakes. You know, we're oftentimes wired with uh, the, the idea that the majority is always right. But so oftentimes, uh, that's not the case. And that's going to be an example uh, this morning, as what we're ultimately going to talk about is the fact that these 12 spies went and spied out on, on the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. But 10 of them uh, chose not to enter the land, and thus Israel didn't enter the land. But before we get into that part of the story, I've got to set the story up for you a little bit. So when God called the people for himself, he called the people for himself uh, through Abraham. And uh, in, you know, as Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob, um, Israel is very small. Um, and, and Israel is not going to exist very long um, without the safety and the protection of, of, of others. Uh, they, they're relatively exposed as they're growing into uh, to be a people. So a, a great famine came upon the land, and um, Joseph, uh, one of Jacob's sons, uh, goes to Egypt and becomes basically, through the hand of God, the second in charge of all of Egypt. And then uh, Jacob's whole family and all all the brothers and so forth ultimately make their way to Egypt. Now they're in Egypt, and this is debated, and a good argument can be made either way uh, based on biblical text and how it's said and, and having to read kind of into what's being said. They ended up spending somewhere between about 200 to 430 years um, in Egypt. Uh, so for these few hundred years that they're in Egypt, though, they're living in the middle of the strongest nation on the face of the earth. Now, there's a benefit to that because no one's going to come and attack them. No one's going to destroy them. And they're able to grow and they're able to multiply and they're able to become uh, very prosperous there, at least number wise, uh, in Egypt. But now it becomes time where God's ready to call the Israelites out of Egypt. Now they can, they're big enough that they can be a nation in the land in which God has promised to them. But the problem is, is the Pharaoh's not going to let them go because they basically are the, the slave labor of, of Egypt. And so God has to call a deliverer for him, for them, and that deliverer's name is Moses. Now, Moses isn't able to just go and talk to the Pharaoh and get the Pharaoh to release the Israelites. Um, God has to do a lot of uh, mighty signs and, and miracles and so forth. And you know these as the 10 plagues. So uh, over the course of time, uh, God uh, shows his power, his strength, his might over Egypt and all the peoples of the earth through these plagues. And by the time you get to the 10th plague, uh, the Pharaoh's had enough, the Egyptians have had enough. They just want the Israelites gone. So the Pharaoh tells Moses, take them away. People are giving uh, the Israelites, the Egyptians are, uh, food, belongings, different things, just, just be gone. 
and they head out into the, uh, into the desert. But they weren't gone all that long, and Pharaoh starts thinking about this and, and, and thinking, you know what? That's a mistake, because who's going to do all the slave labor and all the difficult tasks that uh, the Israelites had been doing in Egypt for so long? And so Pharaoh changes his mind, and he chooses to go after the Israelites. And so he chases the Israelites. And uh, what's interesting is, is, so not only have the Israelites now already witnessed these, these 10 plagues and the power and the might and the signs of God, but as the Israelites are wandering uh, out from Egypt, God's going before them is, is a cloud by day that they can visibly see the presence of God going before them. But then at night, it would be, he, God would appear as a pillar of fire. So they're see, they've seen the miracles, the, 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 the plagues. Uh, they, they, they see the, the presence of God. But now they get trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And, and they're stuck and there's nowhere to go. And so God chooses to deliver the people through probably the great a sign that they've witnessed so far. Moses raises his staff over, over the sea, and the sea splits in half, and the Israelites go, and they walk across the sea on dry land. Now, once they get to the other side, they also see that this water collapses on the Egyptian army and destroys them. So they've witnessed now the, the, the plagues. They've witnessed God going before them. They've witnessed the signs as God parted the sea. Well, then as Moses goes up the, the mountain to uh, receive the commandments from God and he's talking with God and in the presence of God, the scripture says that another sign kind of accompanied uh, Moses and that is his face showed, uh, it shined with the glory of God uh, upon it. So you've had the Israelites have all of these experiences where they see the presence of God working for them uh, and along with them, and God brings them all the way up to the, the land that they were to take possession of, but there's a problem. No one's ever been there. No one knows what the land looks like. There, there's not Google Earth. They don't know what the cities look like. They don't know how many cities there are. They don't, they, they don't know, you know, is the land really good for farming? They don't know anything about it at all. So God has Moses appoint one representative for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So now there's 12 people that go out and spy on the land that, that God was giving Israel as an inheritance. And as they went into the land to spy, they were there for 40 days. And as they, they were observing everything about the land, everything that they heard about it was true. It was referred to as a land that flowed with milk and honey, and it was just better than could be imagined. Um, they even come back bringing some, some grapes from the land that were just enormous, and, and, and they come back after 40 days, and, and, and they give the report that, indeed, the, the land is amazing. But... Ten of the, the, the spies that went there that represents ten twelfths of Israel, they, they said, you know what, we're not going. We're, we're, not we're not going into this land. Yes, it's every bit as amazing as, as, as what God has promised, but you don't understand that the cities are well fortified. We have no way of attacking them. And the people that live in the city, they're like giants. They're, and they said, we're like grasshoppers before them. They're so much taller than us. And so 10 of the 12 tribes say we're not going. Now, two of the tribes, um, the ones that Joshua and Caleb represented, said, sure enough, the, the cities are well fortified. And yeah, we're pretty small compared to these people. But with the power of God that we've witnessed in the past, with the power of God, with God going before us, there's nothing that we can't do. So you had, you had two of them that said, let's go, 10 of them that said, we're not. And it was a very contentious night, the scripture says. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot 
lot of shouting. There's a lot of, you know, just anger and, and, and just uh, wailing and different things as they're trying to figure out what it is that they're going to do. Things got so contentious that scripture says that the, the assembly of Israel wanted to kill the, 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 the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, the, the ones that said we should take the land. They, they're like, what they're saying is nonsense. Let's just kill them. And then the scripture also says that the people of Israel as a whole decided that they wanted a new leader and they were about ready to get rid of Moses and find themselves a new leader who would ultimately take them back into Egypt because they knew that, that whatever was back in Egypt would be better than trying to attack this land or living out in the desert. Well, you might imagine God was none too happy with the decision that was made. Um, in fact, God was quite angry at the Israelites for refusing to, uh, to go into the promised land. So God issues a decree, and that decree is for every one day you spent in the land, Israel's going to have to spend a year wandering in the desert. So they spent 40 days uh, spying out on the land. So God's declaring that for 40 years, Israel's going to have to wander in the desert. God also declares that no one that's above the age of 20 will be allowed to enter into the land because of the, they're failing to believe and trust in what God was going to do. So all Israel wanders for 40 years as a result of this. Only two people above the age of 20 were able to enter the land, and that was Joshua and that was Caleb, because they were the ones that said that, that, that uh, Israel would be able to take possession of the land. So as we look at this mistake, it was an epic mistake by the vast majority of Israel. There's some lessons that we need to all take from it and can be learned from it. And the first lesson that I want to uh, cover with you this morning is this. Doubt does not stem from a lack of evidence, but doubt stems from a lack of faith. Now, the reason I set up the story for you is there's so much evidence that they would have been able to take possession of the land. You know, they had the evidence of, of, of the plagues that allowed Pharaoh to willingly allow his slave labor to walk out of Egypt. They had the evidence of the parting of the sea. They had the evidence of, of God going before them with a, a cloud of fire at night and a, a cloud during the day. Um, they had the evidence of, of Moses' face glowing. They had all these different evidences that God was with them. They had the promise of God that this land was given to Abraham. Why in the world would God have gone through the difficulty of, of doing these crazy things to get them able to be out of Egypt? Why would God have allowed them to cross that sea and do all these different things for them if only his plan was to have them slaughtered as they entered into the promised land? You see, doubt isn't about the evidence because the evidence is, is God had been with them and God was giving them that, but it was about a lack of faith. And when you look at lack of faith, what they're looking at is, well, you know what? Those cities are pretty well fortified and man, those people are big. And so... For the next 40 years, Israel has to wander because not that there's a lack of evidence, but because there's a lack of faith. You know, this is a problem for followers of God really all throughout humanity. It's interesting how often Christians and, you know, Israelites in the Old Testament or whatever. So it's interesting how often followers of God think that they have faith and think they have great faith until that faith gets tried a bit. 
until that faith gets tested. Because you see, Israel thought they had faith until they were confronted with the fact that, that there's giants in this land and there's well-fortified cities. And there you find out they don't really have faith. You know, if it was like a bunch of farmers and a bunch of you know, midgets living out, they would have done it. But that doesn't take faith, right? It's when things look difficult. It's when things don't seem possible. That's when our faith gets tested. And for the people of God, so oftentimes we, we just live in this, this illusion that we have great faith, but we don't. And as Israel failed in this situation, I would say that the church uh, has failed multiple times throughout history. And I think there has been a, a real testing over the last year and a half of the church in which we, we've seen that the church has really struggled with a, a lack of faith on things. I think as the church looked at what was going on with COVID, as the church saw how, how the, the non-religious people were handling this and the, and the version of truth that, that was trying to be you know, pushed on us, the church was all too quick to say, no, no, yeah, we're going to shut down. And churches stayed shut down, some of them for a year, and uh, in, in, in just like a, a complete fear of what was going on. But you know what's interesting? If you look at churches who stayed open throughout the pandemic, almost all of those churches like ours are worshiping way above what we were before the pandemic. And the churches that closed down, almost all of them are only at 70% of what they were before the pandemic. Why? Because I believe that God tests his church on different things. And we were given a, a narrative, we were given a story that just wasn't true. And the question is, is our, what evidence are you going to look at? And when you think about the pandemic, listen, we're far enough past this that, that we can speak truthfully about what it was. All we can compare it to is the, the, the pandemic that was really before that. In 1912, the Spanish flu killed 50 million people in the world. COVID has killed a year and a half into it, 3.8 million. 50 million, and guess what? In 1912, like businesses stayed open, people went to work, people still you know, went to school, people did all these different things in 1912. Do you know that in 1912, when 50, uh, when 50 million people died, that was 2.7% of the Earth's population? Significant. COVID, it has been 0.05. It's been a half of a tenth of a percent of the world's population. We've shut down all kinds of business. You, you can't buy cars. You can't buy AC. No one's working. And, and, and like everything is out because everyone was hiding in place for what ultimately turned out to be a half of a tenth of a percent. And churches went along with that. When I think about where the church is at right now, I see another test of faith going on that I think the churches are failing once again. And that is like, it's more of a, like a social test. Because churches are being really quiet and they're kind of going with the flow on a bunch of disturbing things that are going on in our world, a lot of mistruths that are being perpetuated and the churches aren't saying anything. You know what, Let, let's go back to one that, that is probably 15 years old. It, you know, homosexuality, it's just something we don't talk about in the church anymore. Why? Because that, that, 
That, that's going to be contentious. There's going to be fights. There's going to be people that are going to leave the church. Listen, I get it. We all in here have relatives that, that are gay. We all in here have friends that are gay. So the church has decided to just, we're not going to attack that. We're not, we're not, we're not going to speak up against that. And so we don't say anything about it. But, but even if our teachings officially say, you know what, that's wrong, we don't speak about it. And when we don't speak about it, how is anyone supposed to hear that that's not how we're supposed to be? How about this whole critical race theory stuff that is being perpetuated nowadays? Churches are just quiet on it. And the concept of the whole critical race theory thing is, is that life itself is racist and it's geared against, uh, you know, to favor whites. And if you're not white, it's, it's to, you know, be biased against you. You know, the funny thing is, is like my kids' generation would have never known anything about racism if like all this stuff hadn't been brought up in the last, you know, five, seven, eight years. Because we had just moved past it. But people don't want us to move past it because they want it to be divisive. They, you know, they, 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 they want to just kind of give a, a, a version of truth that isn't even real. And they expect the other side to just kind of lay over because it, it benefits them. So the church just, yeah, we, we just don't address it. Now, like, we have this whole gender-choosing thing. And, and my favorite of, of the gender-choosing thing is, you know, like, non-binary. And that means that, like, I don't know, it's just like you can choose to be whatever you want on whatever day you want. But, you know, people that are non-binary, they, 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 they don't want to be called he, and they don't want to be called she. They want to be called they and them. Listen, I'm not going to participate in a world in which I got to call a singular person they or them. That's ludicrous. If you don't know on any given day if you want to be a he or she, then great, let's be an it. At least that's singular. No, I'm serious. But no one's willing to speak up. No one's willing to say that stuff. The church is just sitting back there all quiet and like, no. And it is a big deal. We think, it, you know, Pastor, that's just social stuff. The church shouldn't be involved in that. That's, no, it's not social and it's not politics. It has to do with the order of God's creation and the design of God's creation. And we're allowing it to be turned inside out and upside down. And it's destroying the communities and the civilization that God's given us. So if the church isn't going to speak up, who is? So, you know, as I'm trying to understand what I, I know what my role was as a pastor in, in, in light of the world's role was in the community during the pandemic. And that is, you know what, we're going to live by faith over fear. And God bless that. God protected that. Uh, we didn't have a, haven't had a member die since December of, uh, yeah, 2019. And I mean, it just speaks for itself, right? But, okay, what is it now? Because the pandemic's passed, and for political reasons and for social reasons, for the fact that we got to start working again and producing things, everyone's ready to move past it. So what are we going to be about as a church? And, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm struggling with it. It's like, you know what, you got all these churches over here, and, 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 and these are the churches that are still only at, like, 70% of their attendance before, and everyone's fishing off of a pond, and I've got, like, a circular light around me. So for me, this is kind of like the pond. And the pond that most most churches fish in is, is, is a pond of, hey, we got great life groups. 
Hey, we've got great small groups. You know what? We have a real friendly family feel uh, when you come to, you know, this church. Um, we got great children's ministry. You know what? That's great. And you got all these churches. They're all lined up around the banks of that pond, and they're fishing for the fish for everyone that's looking for that. But here's the problem with that pond is when pandemic hits, when the government tries to crack down, when, when, when you might lose your, your job or your, your house, your home, your church, whatever, people are going to scatter from that pond because who really wants to die because my church is friendly. Seriously. I'm not willing. I want, listen, I want us to be friendly and I'm going to push for us to be friendly, but I am not dying for that. But over here, and, and I'm like, where are the churches in this pond? In this pond is, you know what? We're going to speak the truth and we're going to speak for what God's word says. And, and that's the pond that I want to fish in. I want to fish in the pond where, you know what? I want the right to tell other people about Jesus. And, and, and if I'm not allowed to speak the, tr the truth, and if I'm not allowed to tell other people about Jesus, I will die for that. I'm not going to die for small groups, but I will die for that, right? And, and this is where Christianity has become. It's just become this, this thing where we're afraid of, uh, of the promised land. We're afraid of like the giants that are there. We're afraid of the, the fortified uh, you know, cities. We're afraid of the government. We're afraid of what our friends are going to think. We're afraid of what our giants, and we can't live that way. That's not living by faith. Second thing that I think we need to learn from this uh, section of scripture is that we treat God with contempt when we don't believe him. And that, that's a big charge, but you're going to see it's rooted in Scripture, that we actually treat God with contempt when we don't believe him. Um, God's a little ticked off at, at Israel because they won't go into the promised land. He's willing to do whatever it takes, you know, the, the 10 plagues to, to get Israel out of Egypt. He's willing to part the sea. He's willing to do all these other things. But like that, 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 that proverbial saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but what you can't do is you can't make that, that horse drink. God was able to lead the Israelites to the promised land, but what he can't do is he can't, by faith, cause them to go in there and, and, and to take possession of what he's clearly given to them. And that's highly offensive to God. And I can't fully like wrap my mind around what it would be like for God to have done all that and to have the people say, you know what, we don't trust you. So I always like to put things in like a human context. And, and I guess the best that I can do in terms of understanding it is um, it just, you know, this like thing that goes on in my house all the time. And I'm, I'm the primary cook of, 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 at my house. And so I've been cooking for, you know, for the family for 30 whatever years or however long it's been. And to my knowledge, I've never made anyone sick. But inevitably, like when I'm cooking, I'll get, you know, some people will come into the kitchen and be like, well, yeah, I can't do that. Like that meat's near in the five feet of this and they're cross contaminated. It's like, go, go, go in the other room. And then inevitably, when you put the food on the table, that like some of them, they'll carve into it and they'll start putting it apart and looking at it and, and be like, is this done? And then they're going to run it to the microwave and, you know, zap it for like three minutes. It could come out like charcoal and they'll be happy. And I have to tell you, I find that offensive because I've been cooking for all these years. I don't think I've ever made any of you sick, but yet you don't trust my cooking. How much more so when God has led them out of Egypt, done all those miraculous signs, is he offended by the fact that they won't trust him? Look at num Numbers chapter 14, 11 to 12. 
And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? These are the children of Abraham. These are the children of God, and he's saying that they despise him. I'm trying to think despise, that's like, that's like hate. That might even be worse than hate. I'm trying to think, is there anyone in this world that I despise? I don't think there's a person in this world that I despise. But that's how God speaks of those who were unwilling to go into the promised land. How long will these people hate me? How long will they despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done amongst them? I will strike them with a pestilence. I will disinherit them, and I will make of you, he's talking to Moses, I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God was ready to be done with them because of their lack of trust and their lack of belief in him, and he's ready to wipe them all out. The only reason that he didn't is Moses just went to bat for him. Moses just pleaded with God that God would be merciful to them, that, God, you can't lead a people out into the desert and smite them all. What will they say about you? And he just really argues on behalf of the people. I can't help but wonder, do we despise God when we don't trust him? You know, I, I know all of us in here, we, we probably have some trust issues and trust issues even with God. I, I mean, I know we haven't, we, we haven't seen God's hand in the same way that the Israelites did where they saw all those signs with the plagues and the parting of the sea and all that other stuff. But man, we've seen some things. God's been there for us in our lives. He's protected us. He's blessed us. You know what? He gave us his son, right? He gave us the ultimate gift that he has the gift, his very own son, that, that we wouldn't die and, and be separated, but that we would have eternal life in him. Like, if God's going to go through that kind of extent for, for you and I, shouldn't we also trust him? Third, uh, third point that I take from this text is, it's a phrase that my grandpa taught me. He who hesitates is lost. And like, I'm pretty sure my grandpa taught this to me like around the dinner table. Like if you were too slow to grab a pork chop, like, sorry, buddy. But, but it's true. If you hesitate, you're just going to lose. You're going to miss out. Israel hesitated. They were on the, you know, they're on the border of the promised land. They could have went in there, but they didn't. And so what happens is a whole generation of them lose out on the blessing that God was going to give them. God doesn't like it when we hesitate. Um, God doesn't like it when we don't trust him. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. But my righteous one, you will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, what, to, to shrink back, that, that's to hesitate. He, God says, my righteous one's going to live by faith. They're just going to do it. They're not going to hesitate. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God, God's soul takes no pleasure in those who, who would hesitate and who would shrink back. You know what? When we do hesitate in terms of our relationship with God, we're lost. When, when we moved to a new city and we had a church in the old city and, and we moved to a new town and we, you know, we think we're going to go find a church, but then like after a couple months you don't, then pretty much you become in the habit of not and, and you hesitate and you, you kind of lose that opportunity and that motivation. You know, sometimes we think, all right, I'm going to go on a Bible reading plan and I got to come up with a Bible reading plan, but we keep putting it on the back burner and sooner or later we just don't do it. We lose that opportunity or we go and get that 
Bible reading plan, but then we find that like we get distracted, so we're not doing it most days. So then we finally just feel bad about the fact that, that we're not doing it, and so we just stop doing it. And he who hesitates is, is lost. You know, helping, a, helping another person. Um, you have those opportunities, and if you choose not to do it, then the opportunity's lost. I think sometimes God puts it on our hearts to, uh, to, to tell other people about, about who he is, uh, to listen to people who are struggling and hurting. Uh, before early service this morning, someone came in from the community, and this person was having a really difficult time, and I ended up sp- uh, speaking to him for about maybe 40 or 45 minutes in my office. And part of me wanted to, after just a couple minutes, say, listen, I got to get ready for church. I got to do all these different things. And, and can we talk at a different time? But I, I knew that I needed to sit there and I needed to spend some time with a person. And, and, and we need to be with those who are hurting, people that maybe the Lord's putting on our hearts, people that God's saying, you know what, share your faith, share your testimony. And when we choose to not do that, we lose that opportunity, but then they might ultimately stay lost as well. You know what, sometimes we've, we realize we've got dysfunction in our lives. Sometimes we know that we need to make changes in our lives and we have that opportunity to do it, but we don't act on that opportunity and then we forever are stuck in that situation that we should have taken opportunity to get out of. He who hesitates is lost. Why do we hesitate? I think we hesitate for one or two reasons. Either we don't trust God or we don't trust ourselves. Now, some of you in here, you're like, I trust God. I just, I don't trust that I can do it. I don't, th- I, don't th- I don't think that works. I, I, I think if you trust God, you got to trust yourself. You know what? I, I know I'm an extremely confident person, but I'm not an extremely confident person because of I think I'm just really gifted or I can do this or this. That. I'm a confident person because I believe in a God who says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. I'll be with you always. And so if you truly understand that, then you know what? It, it doesn't matter what the situation is. You don't have to hesitate because that situation is not about you and about what you can do, but what God can do through you. Last point I want to share with you uh, this morning is this. Our greatest reward is on the other side of doubt. Now, if you've heard me preach long enough, what I have preached before, I've never preached this, but I have said before, our greatest reward is on the other side of fear. But there's a lot of similarities between fear and doubt, so it works also for doubt. Now, preachers will try to tell you, and we we teach all the time that doubt's bad. Um, Doubt can be very bad, and it can be very destructive, but I'm here to tell you doubt can also be extremely powerful. Do you think that Israel, as, as they began to walk through the water on dry land, and you've got like, what, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, whatever, water columns on both sides of you, do you think any of those Israelites were a little nervous about that? I'm thinking I would have been real nervous about that. Why? Because we know in this world in which we live, two plus two equals four. And part of that is water piled up on one side, nothing in the middle, water should come crashing in. So clearly people would have been nervous and anxious about that situation. It's okay that they had doubt. Why? Because they still chose to walk. And it's when you are nervous about something because something doesn't make sense, but you're still willing to trust and follow in God, that's when your faith really grows. And that's when amazing things happen. They would have never realized that miracle if they weren't willing to, to, to walk even when it threatened them to walk. I can think of at least three times in my life in which I felt from God 
that I should do something that I was certain would not turn out well. One of them, by the way, was keeping open during the pandemic. But even though I felt very strongly that this is not going to turn out, well, listen, God, you need to understand two plus two equals four. This isn't going to work out really well. Um, but because you've told me to do it, I will still do it. I've had three times in which, like, it just didn't make sense to do what I felt like God was really putting on my heart to do. But I chose to do it anyways. And I have to tell you that that, that, that is an incredibly powerful thing. To, to choose not to do it would be to miss out altogether. And to do something that, like, if God says, hey, I want you to cross the road. I mean, how scary is that? I can cross the road in and of myself. What, what really is powerful with God is when, you know, he shows you that, yeah, two plus two normally equals four. But in this case, it equals ten and a half. Watch me work. And when he does that, then that's when things get absolutely crazy. And you'll never get to experience that the greatest reward is on the other side of doubt, that you, you're like, this does not make sense. I don't want to do this. But because you've asked me to do it, I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to follow. And then it's like, wow, God is an amazing God. You'll never get to experience that if you aren't willing to be obedient to God, even in the midst of doubt. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament that kind of illustrates this. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, he had erected this, uh, this, this false god, this golden image that every time the musical instruments played, what he wanted is all the people of the land to bow down and to worship this false god. And if you didn't do it, you're going to be thrown into uh, a fiery furnace. There were some exiles from Israel that were there, and um, their names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, um, and the people saw that when the music was being played, these guys weren't bowing down to the false god that was um, erected by King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar finds out, and he's none too happy with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. King Nebuchadnezzar says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Now when you hear the sound of the horn... The flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You see, this is one of those examples in which they know in their heart what they should be doing, but it doesn't make any sense to do it because it would be really easy to say, you know what? Two plus two equals four. Being thrown into a burning furnace isn't going to work out really well. Maybe we should just like pretend to bow down. We know God knows our hearts. You know, we know that we're not really doing it. We're just being forced to. We're going to go through the motions, but, but it just there's no other way. That would have been the temptation, and that's what, you know, the church and Christians constantly are guilty of doing. But that's not how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego handle it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And listen, when you're following God in faith, you don't need to defend yourself to anyone. But if we are thrown into a blazing furnace... The God that we serve, he's able to deliver us. No one's going to argue. Christians aren't going to argue God's able to do things. He's able to do lots of things. Then he says, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, 
That's the part that I need you to see. But even if he does not, in other words, God is able to deliver us from your hand. We think he'll do it, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship you. Why? Because it's not what it's not right, and, and it's not going to. We get it's not going to turn out good. You know. It, and listen, anyone who's ever been a missionary, sometimes it doesn't turn out well. Guess what? Any of us who are alive eventually doesn't turn. We we're all going to die. You don't necessarily know when God's going to do something or when he's not. But it's not about whether or not he's going to do something or not. That even in the doubt, even in the possibility he chooses not to do anything in this, we're still not going to bow down and worship you to the image that you've set up. So Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He throws them immediately into, into the fiery furnace. He heats it up like seven times hotter than what it was before. It's so hot that like the, the guards that are opening the door are killed by the heat that comes rushing out of it. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in it. They're on the floor of the furnace. And suddenly, like it's not just the three of them, there's a fourth person walking around and, and they're like not being burnt up. They're brought up out of the furnace. There's not a smell of smoke on their, on their bodies. There's not a hair singe on their arms. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, he gets a lesson that it's sometimes two plus two doesn't equal four. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have never been able to realize that miracle. You and I would never be able to find courage and strength in that miracle if they weren't willing to, to take a, a chance on the other side of doubt. Because even if God doesn't, but yet we're still going to do it. It's what the Israelites weren't willing to do when they came upon the promised land. That generation wasn't. They just weren't going to do it. The other generation understood how their parents messed up. And when they got the opportunity, they did it. We're all going to doubt from time to time. It's only natural. But what are you going to do when you doubt? Trust him? Or are you going to pull back? Or are you going to hesitate? Do you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Almighty God, we just thank you for this uh, story this morning. I don't know what's going on in everyone's lives, but we all are dealing with um, struggles of sorts. We all have obstacles before us that we face, giants that stand before us, well-fortified cities, um, things that if we do it according to the way that we know that we should, might very well not turn out real well. Help us, merciful God, to be obedient to you, even when it doesn't make sense. In our doubt, help us to trust you, to not shrink back. And in following you, even in our doubt, to see your glorious and miraculous hand at work in our lives, to see things that we would have never have seen before. And even if you choose not to, we will gladly take that reward that you've promised us and won for us through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Certainly good getting to worship with all of you uh, this morning. Once again, uh, happy Father's Day to all of our dads out there. Don't forget, grab some food on the way out. Um, if there's anything weighing heavily in your heart or mind this morning, Dana's over there in the back. Uh, she'd be honored and privileged to pray with you, for you, and over you. Uh, have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you.